0: Hello, I'm Arvin Hickman, and welcome to The Campaign Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss a Sainsbury's ad they've pulled, the industry outlook for 2023, and everybody's favourite topic, programmatic, and whether it's as opaque as we've all been led to believe. A bit later on, we'll be joined by PhD's Global Chief Executive, Philippa Brown, and Chief Strategy Officer, Mark Holden, and PwC's media and entertainment lead, Sam Thomson and Isba's director of media, Steve Chester. But to begin with, I'm joined by my colleague in the campaign studio, Shauna Lewis. Shauna, how are you going?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: Good, good, good. So, Shauna, I wanted to have a, a chat to you about this Sainsbury's ad ad. Um, and why they decided, the brand decided to pull it. Yeah. Our creativity and culture editor, Gergit Digan reported that Sainsbury's pulled the ad. It was a clothing ad, I believe, because it received a backlash about women's safety. Can you sort of give us a description of what this ad was?
1: So the in-store ad had the copy for Walks in the Park or Stores After Dark and it had a photo of a woman in in the park <laughs> um, with a kind of like a midi dress on um, that was by like Sainsbury's clothing band, brand, like two. Um, and it's like quite a lighthearted ad, like with the copy and like kind of like the background of it. Then what happened is Natalie Gordon, who is, she's currently like freelancing as a creative director at Havis London. Um... Did like kind of made a tweet which did some you know kind of laughed at it and then said you know they think we stroll in the dark, um and kind of like mocked it because it is it is just quite like baffling like Mm. I think my first thought is when I when I when I saw both of them was like why would you do that like I don't really get it like I think a lot of women know that you know to stroll around in the dark is not It's not a walk in the park. Like when it's not, it's not fun. Like I think you know I've I've done it when I've gone home and like you know I've, I've had no other way to get home and things like that. And it's quite scary. And then I think the other half of that argument is obviously like you're victim blaming and you're kind of being like you know these women shouldn't be running around at night and things and they and that's and that's that's not true. It's kind of like you know they should be doing whatever they want and they should be allowed to run around and walk. But let's not position it as necessarily an empowering thing because I think more generally like as a woman if you're walking around at night you're not in a position of power mm. you're quite vulnerable um and I think to position it that way where it's more light-hearted it's just a mistake and I think it could be an innocent mistake but I think that also makes it a bit scarier if anything because it's like what was the process for Like, you know, signing off on the ad, like how many checks did it go through? Did it have any sensitivity checks? Like how many women were like checking it? Like if there were a lot of women checking it, why, you know, did that not cross their minds or did they not feel like it was, you know, they could speak up? That's not Mm. to say that they didn't feel they couldn't, but like it just raises a lot of questions about the kind of processes and also like why aren't brands learning from Previous mistakes and like campaign contacted uh, and M. They've had no complaints as yeah. of right now, but it's just the reaction is quite clear.
0: I mean, uh, what, what if I'm really baffling about this, we have to provide a bit of context. Here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sarah Everard being was, thrown
1: around a lot. Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, Sarah
0: Everard, you know, who was tragically abducted and murdered by the former police officer, Wayne Cousins, while walking through Club and Com. I thought that really raised so much awareness about this issue, about women's safety and about, you know, how women don't feel safe walking yeah. around at the park in in, in the evening, um, you know. And, and I just can't understand how when you create something like this and people are reviewing it, nobody stands up and thinks, hang on, yeah How's this think, how does this make women feel it's it's um, look it's an in, i'm sure it's an innocent oversight um, and Sainsbury and sainsbury's very quick to respond to it so let, let's be let's be fair to sainsbury's they they pulled it yeah, very very quickly once they realized the backlash but how does it get through that process I, I you know
1: yeah i think i agree i think it was an innocent mistake i think that is kind of more worrying in itself in that why aren't you thinking about these demographics that are going to see like your ad and I think
0: that's right who's the target to I mean, it's yeah like, yeah, maybe, yeah
1: I think one of our ideas said earlier someone they'd spoken to is that like you know women see things in ads that although they're not necessarily explicitly there they're implicitly there because of their experience and that mm. goes for all sorts of different groups and society and things like that
0: thank you so much for sharing your views I know it's not an easy thing to talk about um but yeah We really appreciate it.
1: No worries. (laughs) Fantastic.
0: Right. So we're going to introduce some special guests in a moment um, from PHD, the media agency that's part of Omnicom Media Group. We have the global chief executive, Philippa Brown, and the chief strategy officer, Mark Holden, who have just arrived at Campaign HQ. Hello, Philippa. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, Mark. Hey, nice to be here. Welcome to the Campaign Podcast. Now, Philippa, you've been at the helm of PhD Worldwide for about three and a half years, is that right? Correct, And previously, you were the CEO of Omnicom Media Group in the UK. You know this market very well. Um, You also live here as well.
2: I do, yes. I live in Fulham.
0: Absolutely. So recently, we held a breakfast briefing that looked at the year ahead, and we had commercial chiefs from ITV Hearst and Spotify who looked into the crystal balls and said the first half of 2023 is going to be tough, but they reckon the second half, we could see a rapid recovery and the media industry is now better equipped to handle these sort of economic shocks than it has been in the past. I want to ask you, what's your view on that? I mean, what do you think about 23? Sorry, what do you think about 2023? How it'll pan out for the industry? And what are you hearing from clients?
2: Yeah, so I think those commercial directors are completely right. I think the first six months will be challenging. I mean, we're not seeing any drastic cuts, um, but we're not seeing uh, huge growth either. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually, I think the second half will um, improve a lot. And this isn't just in the UK market. I think we have seen that in America and other places. Actually, I was just watching uh, the news this morning that was talking about inflation being halved by the end of the year. Um, in the UK. So, um, I think uh, we are better uh, equipped. I think we learned a lot from the last recession um, about clients who cut their budgets or didn't invest behind brand, uh, spent a long, much longer time trying to get their their share of market back. Mm. So, we're not seeing clients cut the budget, but I think, you know, they're cautious. Without a doubt. But we're optimistic and I think there will be a big turnaround in the second half.
0: Is the sentiment that you're you're hearing from clients, is it different in the UK compared to other parts of the world?
2: No, very, very similar. Very I similar. mean, listen, China. we have to take China out of this dynamic completely because mm-hmm. of what's happened with COVID. Um, but other parts of the world are very similar to the UK, US in particular. I mean, when we talk about recession, we're talking about a global slowdown. Uh, not just the UK slowdown. Um, and that's not just rhetoric and the government saying that to protect themselves. It's true. Mm. Um, but the pattern is very, very similar. If I look at our investment numbers, very, very similar across the world.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, Mark, you've been Global Chief Strategy Officer at PhD for more than a decade. Was mm-hmm. it about 13 years? That's right. Yep, great. You've written several books. You're a very smart guy. Actually, I do remember um, interviewing you when I was previously working in Australia for Ad News. I'm very keen to hear your views on 2023, what the market outlook is and how you think it'll play out.
3: I I mean, I, I often look at um, Walk's predictions um, and um, Walk's latest prediction was that it will grow at just under 3%. Mm-hmm. For 2023, um, I've, I've got a sense that might increase as uh, the any fears of, of a recession starts to abate. I think we'll probably start to see a slight pickup in parts of the world. So I'm hoping it would be an uh, increase on the, uh, on that. But really, I mean, that only tells half the picture. It's what will happen within the channels. You know, and you see, we're seeing a, a huge amount of money pouring into retail media. I think it's now mm. the fourth largest channel. Um, And, of course, we've got, um, you know, uh, subscription video on demand uh, uh, taking impressions away. And we've got so many many changes uh, uh, that are happening within the media media world that there's so much to think about. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why um, focusing on, Channels and allocation and, and and planning has become increasingly more important than it's ever become before. Than before. So um, I think come back to your your first point. I think you know when I think about twenty twenty three, I don't just think about the headline numbers. I think about the variation, the changes within yep. it, and, and how we need to navigate through that. I
0: mean, will there be winners and losers in terms of channels and where where investment pours? Yeah, of course.
3: Um, I mean, obviously there there is a a large focus on on commerce still. That's that's going to um, uh, take a lot of the budget, uh on an increased amount of budget. Um, we are still seeing increases in in social channels. Um, we just need to be be mindful of um, what we 're seeing with um, time spent on channels. So I think right saying that in North America, time spent on linear TV dropped from thirty eight percent to twenty five percent over the last ten years mm. um, and so we 're obviously trying to make up that ground in other channels. But those other channels have very different media buying mechanisms you know you've got uh, different formats to use and you've got the issue of attention as well so so much money is pouring into these new channels and we've got to really think clearly about how they actually do pay back um, so there's so much thinking needs to be having. Otherwise, we'll just pour more, more money in and it will leak out the sides. We need to make sure we're investing money uh, appropriately.
4: It's a
0: really good point. And we, when we look at TV, for example, um, ITV has invested a lot in terms of ITVX, their new um, streaming platform. You've got Netflix and Disney Plus now um, you know, uh, offering advertising to brands. How do you see that that segment of the media industry evolving in the next year Five years. Well, from
3: a planner's perspective, what we need to start doing is planning not necessarily a channel level, but an asset level. So yeah. we we'll start thinking about, for example, video as an asset or 15 seconds as an asset, and then think about the best allocation across a range of different channels and environments. But back to the point I've made about attention, you could be looking at new channels that might have slightly lower CPMs than what we're seeing. So with linear TV, we are seeing an increase. I think we've seen an increase of 40% in the linear TV CPM costs in the U.S. over Mm. the last few years, three or four, five years. So um, some of the more digital channels and social video channels can look quite cost effective, particularly when you look at net reach. But you need to, when you factor in attention, then it's a whole different layer of, 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 of analysis you need to do, and some some channels can actually have quite low attention levels, particularly for longer second links, which you might need for branding. So it's become more complex to get, to invest money than it's ever never become before. So one of the things that we're really investing a lot in as a network is making sure we can have all this data in one place and provide simple dashboards to see what how we should best allocate client money.
1: So I think this question for both of you, mm-hmm. um, but I think so like. Globally, Omnicom Media Group's had a pretty good year, <laughs> um, but um, and then also PhD UK has had some good wins this year as well from what we've seen, um, but I suppose as, although we're kind of tentatively positive about the year ahead and things like that, um, we are heading into that economic downturn, mm-hmm. so what are your clients asking from you? in this region specifically and then maybe you could provide a global perspective as well. I
2: mean one of the things Mark just said then is um, a completely so important um, uh, and the big question that clients are asking is how much should we spend on each of these channels? That's the big, the big question and, and Mark can go on and talk a bit more about investment planner and the different tools and techniques we have. But, um, you know, so it's not necessarily, you know, whether the spend's up or down. As Mark said, it's about allocation of spend. That is the most important question. How much do I spend on retail media? How much do I spend offline? How much do I spend on YouTube? How much, you know, and it is complex. It's not an easy answer. As Mark said, we've invested so much money in that data so we can help, help clients. So that's number one. I think, you know, the other things clients are asking, and it's really topical, is all around operating models. So you'll hear this a lot. You know, a lot of clients are saying, we want to transform our operating model. And by that, they mean the way they work and therefore the way we work. Um, And I think it's, I mean, I won't name names, but I'd say our top five Largest global clients, that is top of their agenda. How can we transform operating models? So, what does that mean? Though, yeah, yeah, so what does it mean? It's things like what should we in house? What shouldn't we? Mm. What should we offshore? What shouldn't we? You know, where do we shift resource? And again, Mark can talk about this in our latest uh, thought leadership book, which is Shift. You know, the roles that now clients need to employ and we do have changed dramatically. Um, so, you know, um, there are Asking us should they have these type of people within the organisations and should we have these types of it? So it's a very different landscape. So it's a completely new uh, model. And you know, I was talking to someone from yeah, without dropping names, but from Harvard last night, um, and we were talking about operating models because they're writing a paper on it at the Harvard uh, Business for the Harvard Business Review. And it's the question they're hearing from clients as well all the time. So trying to get to the bottom of a new transformational operating model what does that look like and for a media agency to be asked that all the time and it literally is isn't it mark the number one question it's very it's fascinating really I and mean, so we're moving into this organizational design area mm. uh, which you know 10 years ago clients were yeah, I mean, it's,
0: it's generally been the domain of HR hasn't it? Yeah. I mean is that daunting for a media agency do you guys look over your shoulder and think you know what uh, marketers starting to scratch their heads and think are we becoming a, a little bit more redundant in some ways?
2: No, I think, you know, one of the things that we, um, and is very important on this, is we don't go back with an answer. It's a collaborative uh, workshop process, mm-hmm. and we love that. And I think we're very, very well placed to do that because we see across all the elements of the marketing mix. Um, and, you know, I hate the phrase lead agency, but more and more we've moved into that position. Um, so... You know, it's it's less daunting if you can do it collaboratively um, and you go with an open mind, understand what the clients try to achieve. And then together we work it through and we're working a lot more with other parts of Omnicom. It's all sort of mixed up together. And we love that as well, because, again, you know, I mean, Omnicom has thousands of businesses across the world. So trying to bring them together for the benefit of our clients um, and help them. With that transformational journey is is really exciting.
3: What's your take on this, Mark? Well, I mean, if you think over the last ten years, there's been this you know mad scramble for organisations to build a whole range of you know data technology capabilities and services from from agencies, and I think now there is particularly post COVID a moment of reflection and sort of looking back and assessment and sort of thinking you know is everything in its right place? Um, and I think that's really why it's come up. You know, to Philippa's point, it seems to be one of the main You know the first things we get asked and i think and i think the media agencies not many of them uh, have built that capability to be able to consult with clients on on you know what because if you think about it take any individual capability from sort of, you know, you know if it's um, programmatic activation or tag management, you know, some of these these backroom services, to assess each individual one and say, right, does this one make sense to be offshored? You know, to what extent is it handling confidential information? Do you need to know the nuance of a market? You can you can assess each one on, on, on I think there are about seven different variables we use. And, and out, the outcome of that is, well, this one should be offshored. This one should be hubbed. This one should, so you can start to structure them. Um, and, and I think for any organization, I think it would probably be fair to say that it's unlikely any organisation is optimised in terms of its organisational structure and processes. So therefore, logically, there is... There's money on the floor. There, there are millions of dollars of potential revenue that could be generated or efficiencies that could be generated through a reorganization program. And I think that's
0: something that, that is, that's why it's become so so important for clients. Well, why now? I mean, it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, if marketers just switched on a light bulb and thought, you know what, we need to reorganize, we need to change the way that we operate marketing wise, media wise. Why is this happening now? I think I, it's a good question. I think it's gradually started to happen over the last two or three years, and I, I do think there's something that
3: that sort of emerging from a, from a pandemic and thinking about where everything is. I think there's a sort of reset, sort of mindset. Perhaps that's part of it. Mm. But I think also, I think you know that there are there were some early investments made in tech. You know, for example, some some categories, perhaps low interest categories, we don't necessarily have an ongoing relationship with your, with your audience because of the way that the categories purchase. Um, Some organizations went heavy into MarTech, perhaps they didn't need to, um, uh, or they, they, they invested too much in some data sources that actually became more expensive and didn't generate return. So I think there were lots of early investments because everyone got quite excited and felt they didn't want to be left behind. And I think now there's a sort of a sort of a realization of uh, to, to look at things in a more sober way. Um I think that's kind of what we're seeing.
1: This Just be going back to something that you said earlier about maybe like a similarity in outlook between North America and the UK. But is how they're approaching it um, similar, or are they changing it? So even though North America and the UK might have similar outlooks on like how the year is going to go, are they going to? Is their media plan going to differ, or is it going to be quite similar? Do you think? The one thing I would say in
2: the states that's slightly different is, I think you know they're very good at optimizing. Um, what I want to see more from America is more creativity. I would say, and I'm not just saying that from a PhD perspective. I was the uh, judge of the campaign um, campaign uh, the Can Lions last year, <laughs> and um, I was disappointed. And if you look at the wins of um, of Can that come from America it's very it's very disappointing for a country that's so big and with so many Which... holding companies there creative and media across all the different categories you know um a lot more came from the apac region and canada's very strong actually talking about um, that part of the um, of north america but uh, america itself i think They need to do a reset on creativity would be my uh, focus, I think, in 2023. It's a
0: really interesting point, actually. We caught up with the lovely folks at Uncommon London uh, on Monday and they are actually starting to get a lot of briefs Coming from America, that's to them. interesting. Yeah, and, and I find it really fascinating. And I, I, I ask the question, you know, why do you think that is? Because America is a very tough market mm. for an outside-based um, agency to crack, really. Mm. Um, and they say, well, it's because there's a lack of creativity or there's a lack of the sort of thinking that we can provide. Mm. How would you compare sort of the UK in terms of creativity in a media agency space Mm -hmm. with the States? Mm.
2: Well, I think, you know, um, I mean, globally, from a PhD perspective, we, you know, one of our main um, uh, values is all around creativity and curiosity. So we push it hard and Mark can talk a bit more about that with the ways we do that. Um, But I would say, you know, the UK is... Very much home of creativity. Um, not the only creator mark, but very much home of creativity. But. As we said, from a PhD perspective, it's one of our main things that we push forward. And Omnicom's known for its creativity as well. You know, whether that's DDB or BBDO or TBWA. I mean, they're three of the most creative agencies in the world. And obviously their headquarters are um, in America. Um, But yeah, I think the UK punches above its weight Mm. without a doubt. Are there Um, any other regions that you call out and
0: say punches above its weight? um you know which well, one i want, yeah, <laughs> want you to mention
2: yeah, yeah no I, also, mean, I would
0: say new zealand actually but yeah, also, also yeah, no, maybe, new zealand
2: australia um very very <laughs> quick i mean our, our office in new zealand is uh, I mean, yeah, you know good. phd's number one mm. in in new zealand and wins a lot of, mm-hmm. of awards and so and the same with Australia um so well, yeah I mean well. MJ
0: Matt Jarrett who's the um yeah. boss of it they've had a great year haven't
2: they yeah they really mm-hmm. have fantastic yeah
0: and Canada Canada's another
3: Canada punches which, which seems, yeah to,
2: really really does well
3: yeah I think I think I think in the US I think you know it's understandable in a sense because it's obviously such a vast country of yeah. states and I think and I think you know in a sense is an insight actually you could draw from that which applies to all markets and that is that when the marketing agenda the time you have with a client is taken up with so many other things to discuss these days finding time or prioritizing time for creativity is really important Mm. particularly um, in certain categories and with certain um, uh, you know if, if there's a mindset that actually creativity is a sort of a thing on the edge, but actually we need to focus on, you know, the data, the Martech, the precision targeting and all these things. I think if sometimes you can miss that long-term mm-hmm. um, um, contribution. We know about it. We, I almost don't want to say it because it's been said so many times about the importance of long-term branding investment. We all know it really well. I mean, you know, there is there is that, that recent study, I don't know whether one saw it from Ubiquiti that showed, that said that in 2023, 60% of total spend was invested in brand, uh, 40% in, in lower funnel and it's now 35% brand. So so you can see how the attention on what we can now do in marketing from a sophistication perspective on the lower funnel, how that has dominated the agenda and it's taken so much of the budget uh, away from brand. And, and, and I worry it could get even worse because now with retail media, Half of retail media investment is probably going to be coming from the media budget, as opposed to from effectively the real estate budget, mm-hmm. which is where you'd have thought it could should be coming from, right? Because effectively it's a real estate kind of cost, isn't it, to be in those environments. So, so there's going to be even more pressure. But I think focusing back on that upper funnel, the top funnel, we all know that we've said it many times is how you get the long-term growth. Um, and without that, you really don't get that that that. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah It's it's a really interesting and topical point, isn't it? Because I mean, some of the things that I've been hearing is that you know the the bigger advertisers or brands they kind of have got it. Mm. Um, they've they've really evolved since the last um, recession, yeah. uh, the COVID crisis. Um, so there has been this slow migration back to more brand. Mm. But what you're suggesting is that actually there's still a lot of businesses out there that are, are moving more towards performance, more towards the lower end of the funnel. That's right, and I th- and I think.
3: We've just got to be mindful of that. I think. I think any organisation, any global organisation that has that has an enlightened view and and can somehow isolate the contribution of the long term brand effect, which is hard to do because it's often indi- indirect. Mm. Um, What's important for those organizations is to make sure there's an alignment on that point of view and KPIs, not just with the global team, but within all the local markets. Because the local markets, that are executing on that. If they're working to a different set of KPIs that are more short-term sales-driven, then you'll find the budget will again start shifting to lower final. So I think that alignment, and again, that comes back to the organizational design, making sure that the organization is set up in order to
0: make sure that, that the, uh, the, the company optimizes its investment. Do you think part of the problem here is, is that, you know, the CMO and the role of the CMO, the tenure of the CMO, it's so short term, um, they kind of almost, I wouldn't say forced, but they, they almost have to be a bit performance minded um, because they know that they're probably, you know, there for 18 months, perhaps. I mean, I, th- I think... To be a CEO today is, is an,
3: a, a remarkable responsibility because you, you have to have such a breadth of understanding of different capabilities. that The shift research we carried out last year said that over the last 10 years there's been a 51% increase in the number of capabilities that need to be you know managed or, or overseen by a CMO. So the role of a CMO is much more complex than ever before. So So one of the things we often advise our clients is to make sure that you know, we believe in in-housing, in-housing leadership function. So we think organizations, our clients should have in-house cap- um, experts because otherwise we don't have the bandwidth in order to discuss with them different areas. And you know, if we want to talk about precision analytics or predictive analytics, we need to have someone on, on the client end that we can do that with. It can't all funnel through, uh, you know, a CMO or marketing team. Mm. So making sure there's the the broad spectrum of marketing capabilities represented on the client side is essential.
0: Now, Shauna and I, before this podcast, were discussing um, what we're going to ask you guys. And one of the hot topics, of course, was pitching. Shauna.
1: So we've been talking a lot about the Pitch Positive pledge at Campaign this year. We've done quite a lot of coverage on it, Um, obviously, to try and improve behaviours in pitching and things like that, as it can be a drain on agency resources, a lot of unpaid work involved and like when we speak to people about these pitches like you know it's the regional global reviews they can be really tough um and we just kind of wanted to know what your view on the pitch positive Mm. pledge was
2: well i mean i think it's a great pledge um i've definitely seen a change in client attitudes towards pitching i mean i think there's a lot more respect in terms of exactly that the amount of hours that go into it i mean there's some really good consultants like you know ID comms who you know and others who always ask the client now you know do you really need to pitch you know if there are issues um can they be resolved and they almost become sort of a marriage counsellor you know and let's see if we can work it out and put together a plan so i think and um, which i think is the right thing to do um and so i think definitely uh, clients are much more respectful of our time um, I think the, the complexity of pitching now, though, um, I mean, to Mark's point about a 51% increase in capabilities, I mean, the briefs are endless, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. so you have briefs on the marketing tech, you have, you know, there's briefs on what should you, inhale, you know, organizational design, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And so no longer is it, you know, here's a brief for... Tea, a tea brand come back with a plan and an idea mm. it's not i mean actually that's a very small part of what you actually get asked to uh, pitch on so many other things and you know i've seen briefs that have had you know 100 questions in it mm. um in them and it's literally spread across the whole organization and as you said that can take a lot of time I mean, we've had pitches that have gone on for 18 months it's not just about our time either it's their time And again, you know, I always ask clients as well, are you sure this is the right time for you pitching? You know, because a lot of organizations are changing, to Mark's point. And um, I think sometimes they use pitching to almost get them aligned as an organization, but it's not necessarily the way they should be doing it. So... um, But I I do think pitching has changed. I think there's a lot more respect for our time and the fact that, you know, if you really don't need to and you've got some issues that can be resolved, whether it's a leadership point or, you know, we're focusing on the one thing, maybe the briefs aren't right. Let's go into a process together before you go to, I think the pitch is, you know, it's the sort of Should be the the last call. Yeah, last call.
0: Can can I ask you, just just to pick up on that point, it was really interesting that you said, that you, you've noticed there's been a change in, in yeah. terms of behaviour and, and respect and that sort of stuff. Is that mostly coming from UK clients or are you seeing that
2: globally as seeing well? Seeing it globally. Okay. Definitely. that's really no, interesting. Definitely seeing it globally, without a doubt, yeah.
1: I think as well, Like, I think, I don't know, from, me, from my perspective, what would be interesting to see this year is that probably talking to like um, media agency leaders is that they're saying that Their clients asking for more for the same amount of money, like they're looking to like spread their their budget further. Mm. But then it's also opposed to this idea of like looking after people and like the pitch positive Mm. pledge. And it's Mm. like, how far are those words going to go before? Mm. I don't know, like money and kind of mental health. I suppose kind of like yeah, yeah, they're kind of going head to head those kind of ideas.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with that that starter pitch. You know, we've obviously pitched to clients that 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 will approach it that way. I mean, the one thing we're seeing slightly more of it certainly feels like it's moving this direction is a kind of shift in the in the um the view of what is expected to be achieved through a change of an agency from a media perspective so um historically it was pretty much not exclusively but pretty much about media was a cost effectively to be reduced
5: whether it's right. you know, yeah yeah
3: can we reduce our spend slightly without losing can you say can that's reduce fees? It is it's for some clients the more enlightened clients it's it's changing and, and when I say enlightened what, just let me just qualify that because obviously you know I'm an agency person for media agency, so you know how am I going to say that anyway? But it's it's realizing that you know a, a, a reduction in in fee for example uh, or media media spend you know, in terms of value when you look at that. In proportionate to the to the the revenue of that of that organisation, it's a rounding error. Whereas the difference that that the contribution of media thinking or marketing thinking to lift return on investment can make, you know, it's top line growth, it could put three, four, five, six, seven percentage points onto top line growth. Um, so, but it's much harder to assess a media agency on that basis. It's really easy doing that because we've done it for many years. But if you can do it, and and if you are able to, go, if you've got the tools and the mechanisms to assess the agency as, as, a, as a, so media is no longer a cost to reduce, but it's a lever for growth, then you really start to see a massive impact. Um, and I think that's that's where I think the more enlightened clients, the pitches that we've done, are in that space now. I think they're realising that's that's the big game in town,
0: which is really positive.
3: Yeah, fantastic. And it's in an acceptance also that a media agency is really now, the cool PhD a media agency really is, kind of. a a poor predictor or or descriptor of what it does. If you Mm. think about the breadth of what we offer, we're really a media but marketing communications agency now. Mm. So I think to assess this on
0: the old media paradigm is is kind of like, you know, uh, is is not quite right. Okay. Uh, Now to end with, uh, I know uh, last year you appointed Toby Hack to lead EMEA. Uh, Tell us about Toby. Why did you make that appointment and what's the sort of structure like now?
2: Well, Toby was based in Australia, That's so I right, don't know was. if he did. You come I, across him? I actually him never Australia? met him. No, oh, okay, no. okay. So um, Toby's been with us for about twelve years. Um, he's a remarkable guy. Um, clients love him. Uh, the people love him. He's very much a people person, isn't he, Mark? That's mm, great. Um, and um, we've grown enormously in Amir. Uh We've got sixty-two offices now across Amir in fifty-one countries. And we just needed greater focus on those offices and developing them, and um, more consistency in our approach across Amia. And so uh, Toby had all the right uh, skills um, and attitude to run that. And already, I mean, a few months on, he's already we've opened an office in Turkey, and he's uh, already doing a fantastic job. So yeah. So part of
0: his job is to actually expand. Expand,
2: grow. yeah. Ensure that we're approaching. Uh, uh things like omni and omni studio in a consistent way so that's our data uh, marketing and data insights platform and workflow um and really just make sure that we're raising the bar in all those markets mm. um so that's really important
0: is there something to be said about sort of pan european reviews and and if, is that becoming more common is that, is that part of the reason why you need this collaborative approach
2: less so i mean actually we did win uh kimberly clark across the mere last year and that was in a mere um pitch uh, which was fantastic. Um and there were, you know, I mean You know, a lot of the big global clients look at it, you know, North America, EMEA, APAC, and they do do that. But it wasn't the main reason um, for that at all. Um, It was more just making sure that we have the best talent in each of those markets and that we raise, raise our standards consistently across every market, not just in a few.
0: Fantastic. My final question for both of you, what are you most looking forward to in 2023? We'll start off with you, Mark.
2: Oh,
3: I am. What am I looking forward to? This is a
0: bit of a curveball question, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th-
3: I mean, I think really um, I have been a little bit obsessed, as, I sh- as I'm sure most people listen to this uh, podcast uh, are, are as well, about... Um, uh, Chat GPT, mm, in well, AI. Explain what Chat GPT, and, GPT is. Well, okay, so this is uh, the um, the first public uh, beta release from uh, OpenAI, the uh, consortium that was that was funded by it was funded by Microsoft. I think Elon Musk put some money in to start with. So they've they've released this uh, this website that you can go into and you can type any any request and it, it, you can effectively speak to a general purpose AI. And I think for me, I'm very excited about how that can be used in a way. That um, enhances what we do mm-hmm. I, I can see i mean already as i'm sure all the other uh, holding companies we're already now trialing it in our platforms and, and to see where, where it can kind of come in and and i think it it's it will free up us from certain tasks and allow us particularly strategists to become effectively you know if you're your strategist with say, f- you know three or four years experience effectively you are effectively a chief strategy officer straight away because you've got generative AI that's, that's helping you in shaping and coming up with suggestions and, and crystallizing your thinking for you. And your effectively your role is effectively shaping, leading and directing. And I think also what it could do is it could allow our strategists to start to, um, as well as to take a more leadership role and not a generative role, it will also allow them to start to step in and start to produce strategy some of the you know the great ideas that the, the agencies have require some form of production you've got to get on the phone make things bring things together connect technologies so so it the, what i'm really excited is 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 how it's going to change the disciplines of our industry
0: that's a good one philippa you're going to get the final
3: word
1: yes yeah? you oh, that. <laughs> I know, exactly.
2: um well um I'm really looking forward to seeing the output of all our hard work from a creative perspective, actually. We're going to be setting up a creative council this year um, at PhD, uh, a global council to really focus on the work mm. and ensuring that we're so resurfacing some of the work uh, across in every market. And I'm really looking forward to the output of that um, because we know creativity drives the biggest return in investment. So I can't wait for that.
0: Fantastic. Well that's a really nice positive note to end it on. Philippa, Mark, thank you so much for joining the campaign podcast. Thank you
1: so thank much. You. Oh,
0: thank us. You. So let's move on to programmatic advertising and a new study by Isbar and PwC about the supply chain and whether it's improving or getting worse. Uh I am delighted to be joined by Sam Tomlinson, the Media and Entertainment Lead at PwC, who has led the research project, and ISBA's Director of Media, Steve Chester. Hello. Hi. Hi. Lovely to have you at the Campaign Podcast. So, programmatic advertising has been a bit of an issue, a bit of a a sticking point or a sore point for the industry for some time. Um, A lot of our listeners will probably recall a bit of research from the US by the ANA uh, that found... Around half of every ad dollar spent went to publishers, and the rest was being shared by what has been described as a murky supply chain, questioning the transparency and the value that programmatic advertising delivers. Now, PwC and ISBA have run two reports. The first one came out in 2020, which interrogated the supply chain and where ad dollars or pounds were being spent. Um, your initial report, Sam, painted a pretty bleak picture. Perhaps it would be useful just to give us a bit of a rundown of what you do, what you learned in 2020, and then we could talk about how that's changed with this current research.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, and, and just to set the scope here, we, we, are, we are not looking here at walled gardens. We're looking here at open web programmatic that then divides between open exchange and private marketplace. We're trying to match impressions from the demand side, the DSP, to supply side, the SSP. Um, and you will recall, I'm sure, that it, that in 2020, um, that study identified you know significant challenges with data access and data quality, uh, and in, in addition, 15 percent of spend was was unattributable, which at the time we christened the unknown delta. So the unknown delta, you know, I love, love that label. The un, yeah, the unknown. I mean, that was literally it. it. was a it was a it was a gap, and we didn't know what, what was causing it. Um, uh, yeah, so, so frankly, I think everyone would recognize that, that in 2020, what, what we uncovered was was a mess that needed working on.
0: Mm. Can, can I just uh, take a step backwards, maybe zoom out a little bit? Can you describe in one sentence what programmatic advertising means? What is it?
4: Programmatic is the the automated algorithmic buying of inventory, uh, often but not always through a real-time auction. Um and then, specifically within the scope of this work, as I said, you exclude the Wall Gardens. You're then focusing in on, you know, normal publishers, um, uh, and you are, you know, who are selling their inventory through a real-time auction through the programmatic um, ad tech ecosystem.
0: Okay, so we're going to come back, uh, trek back to the Wall Gardens uh, in a moment. But I guess um, what will be interesting: um, how has this changed? Now you've done two bits of research, two years apart. Um, in 2020, you discovered that there was an unknown delta, about 15% of ad spend was unattributed. What have you found with this current bit of research, which came out this week?
4: So, so, so in the two years since our first study, um, there's been a, a task force cross-industry operating in the UK, led by Isbar and the other trade bodies uh, that we were involved in to um, and that task force produced a toolkit designed to improve data access and data quality. So the 2022 study um, was designed to examine general industry progress and very specifically to test that task force toolkit. Um, you know, I should thank all the advertisers, agencies, tech vendors, publishers. You know, all very helpful in enabling this second study to happen, and and the results are really promising. Um, The the study time was halved from 18 months to nine months. We got much better data quality, and we might want to dig into that later, but much better data quality. And as a result, the percentage of impressions we could match from buy side to sell side increased nearly fivefold. And that delta is down from 15% to 3%. Um, Now, I should add some caveats. This is a premium study. Yeah, this is the premium end of programmatic. What we have found here is not representative of all programmatic, definitely not of long tail. What we've found here is what we've demonstrated here is what can be achieved at the premium end with a lot of investment and hard work.
0: Mm. we're going to touch on the non-premium end uh, a little bit later on. Steve, I want to bring you into this. Uh, Obviously, Isbar has commissioned this research, it's really important. Advertisers are obviously very concerned about where their ad spend goes. What has been the response um, to the findings of this new bit of research?
5: Yeah, so the broadly response has been positive, as it should be, because you look at the results from the first study, only twelve percent of impressions could be matched. So, if you can imagine that, if you transfer that to money, you know, you're looking at twelve percent of your campaign can only be tracked end to end, that was obviously a cause for concern. Um, as was the gap in terms of not knowing where that fifteen percent of advertiser spend was flowing to. So, this time around, we're looking at figures of fifty-eight percent for matching. So, four, to, you know, five, four to five times higher, um, which is much better. And obviously that unknown data where it's an unattributable amount of money has dipped to 3%. So Sam said this is the premium end of the market, so it's not representative of programmatic as a whole. So we're not saying this should be, this is for all stakeholders, all advertisers, all publishers, all SSPs, DSPs, this is what you can expect. But the results are much better. Um, there is work to do. We'll come back to that in a moment, I think, in the discussion. But the results have been broadly welcomed. Um, but I think there's much, there is work for us to do to take back to that cross-industry task force that initially took the results and findings from the first study and said, how can we implement some of these recommendations? There's some refinements to that work because primarily the second study has tested that work. So we'll take some of the findings back to refine that. But I think there's also some other points that we can actually then build on, discuss within the task force, which can go further so that we can further improve the results.
1: Okay, yeah, brilliant. Um, so I think our next question would just be is, where is that ad spend going? Where is it being shared? And then, what is the next step for the industry?
4: In terms of where the ad spend goes, so the spend that we were able to analyze end to end was that spend that was ending up with the publishers in our study. You know, and they are typically that you know the premium publishers, most of the members of the AOP who want to participate in this type of work. Um, on the buy side, what we did do is we analyzed. All of the impressions. we'd collected 1.3 billion impressions, of which 160 million went through to our study publishers. So that's about 12%. You know, if you look at where the rest of that spend is going, there obviously are some premium publishers who weren't in our study, but there is also, and this is true of all programmatic, you know, there are a lot of websites being used by virtually all advertisers. Um, and as you look through those websites, some look like they make sense you know some of them if I was an advertiser I, I might think twice before using them.
1: Mm.
0: It's an important message isn't it in terms of where you place your investment um, I'm really curious about this idea of the walled gardens the non-premium I mean when we talk about walled gardens um, are, are we talking about two very large tech companies and, and the sort of networks they run I mean well can you give us a bit more insight into the parts of the industry the programmatic trading industry that you didn't cover?
4: Yeah so yeah um, fundamentally this type of study is about how the money's flowing along the tech chain and how much is getting to the publisher. Um, and that's, you know, that's the very specific scope and focus. If you think about those big walled gardens, you know, if you spend with Meta, with YouTube, you know exactly where your money's gone. It's gone to Meta, it's gone to YouTube. So you don't need to do an end-to-end study in the way that you do where you have a tech mm. ecosystem in the middle with a separate publisher at the end. Um, so, so that, that's why the walled gardens wouldn't be part of this type of exercise.
5: I do think that, I do think there's, just to add to that point, I think there's also a conflation between, um, clearly Google operates a lot of tech infrastructure as well as being media owner. And I think often it's conflation saying talk about walled gardens. It, sometimes people think about including Google's DSP and SSP as saying that's kind of, you know, including in that narrative when in fact uh, Google's DSP and SSP were included in the study. For clarity, whereas Google is a media owner, i.e., YouTube, its owner, owned and operated, was not. So I, I just want to draw that distinction because I think people think that Google, some people think that Google aren't taking part at all. They are, uh, and other parties as well. So I just want to make that point very clear.
0: It's a very important caveat. And, and so for transparency's sake, um, we should also note that Haymarket, the publisher of Campaign, um, also took part in this study. Final question for both of you. Um, you can both have a crack at this one. What is the main headline here for advertisers? What is the main takeaway?
4: So so I would have two, I think. Um, These are great results, very promising results at the premium end of programmatic. Um, They should not be taken to be representative of all programmatic. If you therefore are a premium advertiser, our advice would be, you know, invest through with your agency, invest through premium tech vendors with premium publishers. And in particular within that, fully auditable, well-curated private marketplaces did really well. So so I think that is the message is um, think carefully about how you spend and where you spend.
5: Yeah, I think to add to that, I think it was very clear, although the results were much better in this study, which is good news, uh, that the PwC team still has to do a lot of manual intervention and working with uh, each of the vendors to get the results we've got. And by that, I mean that if... The initial results have been accepted, the data that was given to PwC to do the auditing have been accepted. We would have seen results similar to last time, certainly in the unmatched number, the unattributable amounts, the unknown delta. And it's through some manual intervention by the PwC team, working in partnership with the vendors uh, and the data they're supplying, uh, saying, actually, you haven't given us everything we need to be able to do the audits, to be able to complete the audit. So I guess, you know, there's still a lot of manual work. Uh, which I think then reflects the fact that there's still work to do in the industry to sort of automate and to sort of reform to make, to ensure that that kind of heavy lifting doesn't need to happen because, you know, where we should be heading towards are advertisers being able to access this data in or near real time and to be able to audit when they see fit. That's the kind of goal we need to get to. But it's still very clear, although there's been vast improvements, there's still work to be done to be able to get to data in a sufficient enough time the study this time took nine months rather than 18 months the first time round that should be taking really four to five months for an advertiser who to undertake this kind of audit so nine months is is good it's half it should be it should be improved we do note that doing a study of this kind rather than an individual audit you've got there's more considerations for people when they're giving a state of this kind of st- a study as opposed to a private audit that may mean that it takes takes longer to get permissions. But even so, the time to do these kind of audits needs to diminish and they're still not normalised, these kind of audits. It needs to be normal behaviour within the industry to expect clients to be able to audit in a suitable time frame in a cost efficient manner. And there's some more nuances, which we haven't got time to talk to you today, which is included in some of the narrative you'll see in the industry. Uh, talking about some specific recommendations about how we can improve. And we'll take those through to the task force, the industry task force to carry forward and implement in the future.
0: Fantastic. So it sounds like there has been some really positive progress, but still a lot of work to do in the future. Sam and Steve, thank you so much for joining the campaign podcast.
5: Thank you for the invite. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you to Shauna, Philippa, Mark, Sam and Steve for joining us and also our producers, Navpal and Lindsay Riley. If you'd like to keep up to date with everything that's going on at Adland, please visit campaignlive.co.uk. We hope you will join us next week on behalf of the campaign team. Goodbye.